You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly guide to science and innovation. Hello, I am Mark Enetbanus. And I'm Leo Stevens. Welcome to The Brief, where we cover two concepts from science and business. Hey Mark, what have you got for us today? Hey Leo, today I'm going to talk about sabbatical leave. Sabbatical leave, or sometimes called study leave, is defined as a break from work, during which employees can pursue their interests, like traveling, or writing, or research, or volunteering, or even in some cases rest. During that time, the employee is still employed at their organization, but they don't need to perform their normal job duties or even report to work. Now, this type of leave is ingrained in the employment conditions of research and teaching staff in permanent employment at universities. And full-time employees can apply for this every three years of employment. Usually, this type of leave is granted for one or two semesters and is fully paid. And let me say that again. At universities, this is fully paid. And while on sabbatical leave, a researcher used to be free to do as they like. And I would definitely say that this is one of the perks of working at a university. Most researchers will use their sabbatical leave to spend three to six to 12 months of time doing research at another institution that is usually based in another country. Sabbatical leave is also available in the world of business, but unlike universities, only a very small number of companies offer this type of leave, and even fewer companies offer paid sabbatical leave. And this is, very briefly, an overview of the key aspects of sabbatical leave. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty wild. You kind of imagine somebody on the factory floor of the Ford assembly plants suddenly going, hey, I don't feel like installing gearboxes anymore, but why don't you keep paying me while I go and mow some grass? 100% right. <laughs> so what, what's the history of this? Do you know how and why it became part of the academic conditions of employment? Well, employment conditions are usually covered in what is called an enterprise bargaining agreement in Australia. And these are negotiations where unions and other representatives fight enormously hard with the university management about perks. I think originally it comes from the point where most academic researchers would spend a lot of time on their teaching, which would absorb a lot of their energy. And by being on sabbatical, they would not have to teach and could focus their time on developing new research avenues. And I think that's probably the historical reason behind this. So you say that uh, university staff are able to apply for this every three years. I assume that means it's not guaranteed that you'll be approved. What types of sabbatical leaves are acceptable? Or could you just go home to put your feet up for 12 months? As long as you have a plan that says, while I'm at home and I have my feet up, I'm thinking about research that I'm going to do. So who approves that, I guess? It goes through the entire line management uh, structure. So in order to get sabbatical leave at my university I would first have to indicate that I am going to do this about a year in advance in my career appraisal interviews I would have to document that in all the forms that go with it then have a conversation with my line manager who's usually the head of school 
if he or she approves it, it goes to the faculty. If that gets approved, it then goes to central university management. Right. So it's, it's not as simple as walking out the door one day and saying, I'll see you in 12 months. No, it's not as saying like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Fair enough. Have you ever taken any sabbatical leave yourself? So if you look at the ratio of what I said, you can do this every three years. I've been a university academic for 20 years and I've only ever taken one, academic, one sabbatical. I have done it and it's, it was a really awesome experience that allowed me to change the direction of my research. But as I said before, well, I also visited other institutions. I went to a few places in America, attended some conferences. So it was a great experience, but there were really... I was allowed to go on sabbatical and then report back to duty six months later, pretty much. Amazing. Well, we should move on to the yes. next topic. And I've picked one which is almost the exact converse of sabbatical, uh, a term called sweat equity. And I think it really highlights some of the differences between academia and the world of startups. So where sabbatical leave allows for academics to draw a salary even while they're working outside of their university... Sweat equity is a recognition that people can sometimes work within a business but not be paid for it. So one analogy that I've seen a lot for sweat equity is when you're doing do-it-yourself work at home, you could choose to paint your house yourself rather than pay for a painter to do it. And the money you save on paying the painter, essentially you put that in yourself with your own labour and that is sweat equity. Either way, your house gets painted, its value improves but because you've used your labour rather than your capital to paint the house, the uplift in its price is said to be due to your sweat equity. So early stage companies are almost always built with some portion of sweat equity as the founders put in their time to develop the business while drawing little or no salary. This is usually recognised in the business valuation, which will be many times higher than simply the capital previously invested plus any profits made to date. You can imagine an early stage business being valued at a million dollars, but there has not been a million dollars worth of new money put into it, nor has there been a million dollars worth of profitable sales made by that business. So simply accepting sweat equity as part of the startup journey is fine up to a point. It, it works when the founders are the only owners of the business and they're all contributing equally because ultimately they share in the value uplift that they're all putting into that business. However, it can get more tricky when the business grows to include outside investors who aren't working or essentially any situation where the owners of the business are not contributing equally to its growth. So it will take a while to unpick uh, how we can account for those differences, but essentially it's by employee share options and by paying different proportions of the business based on how hard people are working or converting everybody to salary so nobody's working for sweat equity anymore. But that's the summary of what sweat equity is, and we'll fire away with some questions. Sure. So over what period would somebody earn sweat equity? Is that a month, a year, two years, three years? Sweat equity is just the term for the value that you put into a business without being compensated in cash. So it could be forever. If you, if you are a founder who never draws a salary, every piece of work you do for that business is contributing sweat equity. The question I guess you might be asking is, how and under what timescales would that be remunerated with yeah. sh share option equity? And that comes down to the investors and investor agreements. It really is by negotiation. They would often develop something called an employee share option pool, which is a set of shares that are set aside to remunerate or incentivize the various employees who are contributing to the company. And, and how is this sweat equity and the value of it 
monitored. So let's say I'm an early start employee. I said I'm going to put in three days of my week as sweat equity, for which I like some share options, and the other two you can pay me a nominal salary. How is this monitored? It is very much a dark art. Generally, when you're talking about the founders, the very early stage of the business, when investors come in to value the business, they're valuing it based on you know the quality of the idea, the IP you've generated, the kind of team you've built. And that can mean that it is kind of completely out of step with what might have been a reasonable salary for the amount of time that's been put in. Say you, you're, you know, you're a, a founder who could have commanded a $100,000 a year salary. You've put in a year of your time to developing this business. It does not mean that the business is worth $100,000. It could be worth $5 million. It could be worth $50,000. So the sweat equity you put in does not necessarily have to be commensurate with the salary that you would have been able to acquire somewhere else. It's commensurate with the value that you have generated into the business in your time there. So if you've done something that's incredibly valuable to business, but it only took you three months, well, maybe you've generated $400,000 of sweat equity in three months. So what happens in the opposite situation where you're earning sweat equity, but the market value of the company actually has gone down? How does that work? Well, I guess the market value of the company includes all previous investors. So all investors will have lost some money there. You might have gained a proportional ownership of the company through your sweat equity. So whereas before you might have owned 15% of the company, maybe now you own 35%, depending on how much the value of the company has dropped. Dictate, um, I guess, whether that's been a net positive for you or not. And just a final quick question, share options. That's probably, we don't have enough time to fully go into that. But if I was to be awarded a share option, what is its time frame for maturing? Um, a share option is essentially a contract and it will state in the terms of the contract how long it is until expiry. Uh, but we will probably cover share options in an upcoming week. So hope to talk about it in more detail then. And I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week. See you next week.